You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Dana McKenzie is a freelance science writer who has contributed articles to magazines including Science, Discover, American Scientist, and New Scientist. His first book is The Big Splat, or How the Moon Came to Be. Thank you for joining me, Dana. Well, thank you very much, Rick. I want to talk a little bit about something I find really interesting. Mm -hmm. This book is largely in the genre of science history. It's a really interesting nonfiction genre because science doesn't work Mm -hmm. the way you kind of tend to think it works, does it? That's that's absolutely correct. You know, one of the things I'm trying to do in my book is to sort of get away from the textbook or classroom view of science where you just see science as this oracle that provides you the answers to your questions. And really, the discovery of science is a very complicated and human process that involves lots of far, false starts, lots of guesses. And uh, and I try to tell that story in my book. The particular thing I'm looking at is the question of how the moon came to be. What is the origin of the moon? And it's something that people have thought about for a long time and had many different theories about, uh, most of which turned out to be wrong. And so that's part of the fun of this book is finding out about those old wrong theories and, you know, and finding out what was wrong about them and also what was right about them because they did contribute. Even mistakes do contribute to the eventual process of scientific discovery. One of the things that that I found really interesting was the ancient concepts of the moon. We don't really think about that, but at at first they thought the moon was a god. Mm -hmm. That's something that we expect. They had lots of interesting ideas. Um, You know, of course we hear, yeah, there are many fascinating moon god stories and goddesses, and uh, actually those didn't get into my book very much, but uh, I did some research on that and uh, wrote a a first chapter that we eventually got got tossed out about that. But um, that's one aspect. Also, some people thought the moon was a fire in the sky. Some people thought it was uh, a hole in the sky through which you could look and see heaven and uh, all sorts of ideas. Um, Some people thought it was a mirror. Um, So its true nature was not really recognized until Galileo looked at it through a telescope. Well, back way back when there was a in, in the ancient concepts, you start mm-hmm. out with the ancient concepts, right. and, and one of the first people to hold a meteorite w- was Anaxagoras. Tell us yeah. about him Anaxagoras. and his thoughts. Well, Anaxagoras. he was fun. You know, one of the fun things about writing a book like this is learning, finding out about people you never knew about before, and it's kind of like having a character come to life, and, and Anaxagoras was one of them. He was, uh, he was a Greek who lived, I guess, I'd have to look it up, but... Um, uh, about 500 BC or a little bit earlier. And um, during his lifetime, a large meteorite f- fell to the ground in Thrace. And he heard about this and, and went out to Thrace and saw this this rock that had fallen from the sky. And uh, this just had a, an amazing effect on him. You know, the idea that rocks could fall from the sky got him thinking. And he thought, well, you know, maybe the moon is is one of those rocks and, and that it came from the earth. It spun off of the earth. So um, and in some sense, uh, part of his theory was right. The moon is a rock. He, and he was the first person to actually realize that that's what the moon is. He he also was the first person to get have uh, at least a correct idea of the size of the moon too, and it's we all mm-hmm. we all know the size of the moon now, but it's 
interesting to think that we didn't always know that. Sure. Well, of course, you know, we didn't even know what it was. But he, uh, it's, it's funny how he described it. He said he thought the moon was at least the size of the Peloponnesus, which if you remember your Greek geography or history, that's this peninsula where Sparta is and where they fought a big war. And, um, and so he underestimated a little bit, but that was at least a, a good rough uh, feeling for it, that it was country-sized. Moving on, eventually we started to develop math the Greeks started to develop math to track the motions uh, of, the, of the objects in the sky, and Aristotle's cosmos came into being. Mm -hmm. Well, that's right. So um, Aristotle, of course, ha had a huge influence on later generations, and he saw the solar system with the Earth at the center. So he had the Earth-centered universe in Aristotle, and the heavens were seen as this very pure region that was free from earthly corruption and very far away. And you have this sort of idea of the, of the celestial spheres. And that view really prevailed for, for a couple, th 1,500 years or so after his death. And one of the first people to begin to um, subscribe to the Copernican theory, mm -hmm. who was he was the man who figured out that maybe mm -hmm. we weren't the center That's of everything, right. yes. was a man named Johannes Kepler. And I'm glad you mentioned him because here was one of the other unexpected pleasures of my book. You know, I talked about digging up some of these characters from history, and I had really planned on having Galileo be one of the heroes of my book because he was the first person to look at the moon through a telescope. But as I started reading, I discovered that Galileo actually didn't write that much about the moon and didn't study it a whole lot. He went on to other things. But Kepler, a contemporary of Galileo's, was fascinated by the moon and wrote an entire book about what it would like be like to live on the moon and is, is actually viewed as the first science fiction book by some people. But it actually has a whole lot of good science fact in it. A lot of his you know, descriptions are dead on. He's got the math and the astronomy absolutely right. So it was, it was a lot of fun uh, writing about him and kind of uh, putting him on a par with Galileo. And in particular, one thing that I found out, and I don't know if I mentioned this in the book or not, is that he was the person who actually urged Galileo to go public with his support of the Copernican theory. Galileo had come to the belief that Copernicus was right, but it was too dangerous to espouse that, that the, that the Earth was not the center of the universe because it went counter to all the religious teachings of the times. So Galileo didn't want to do it. And it was Kepler who kept saying, Galileo, we need, I need you to, to say this, to tell the world about this. And you know, finally Galileo did, but really it was Kepler who, uh, who was the more radical one of the two. One thing that, again, this book brings out that you, we never think of is that Galileo was the first person to look at the, at the moon and think there were landscapes on it, not just think it was colors or that's shadows. Right. Yes, that's right. And of course, he had the advantage of being one of the first people to see it through a telescope. And um, the telescope really dramatically changes the way the moon looks. It looks much more three-dimensional. You can start seeing the craters, and, in, and you can really see the sun's shadow um, you know, on the craters, which changes day to day and even hour to hour. Um, and it was Galileo, though, who really um, looked at this with understanding and realized that this was this was a landscape that the moon was made out of you know rock just like earth and had mountains and valleys and so forth and really he meticulously he did beautiful beautiful drawings of the moon which helped sort of convince people who didn't have access to a telescope then we had newtonian physics that came in and made things a lot simpler and also right. more complex because we had 
uh, an inclination to think that everything had to happen in a perfect circle, in a mm -hmm. perfect sphere. And the world, mm -hmm. the universe proves not to be so that's, perfect. That's true. <laughs> the universe is trickier than you think. And uh, actually, planetary planets orbit not in circles, but in ellipses. And uh, so for a long time, astronomers struggled with this fact because they expected, again, from Aristotelian theory, they wanted, expected planets to go in perfect circles. But uh, Newtonian physics shows that, uh, in fact, they move in ellipses. But that's actually, if you have one planet, it would orbit an ellipse. And then if you have a bunch of planets, then they start perturbing each other a little bit. And, and that's when things get quite complicated. Now, I... I'm not sure. Was it Kant or Laplace who first who no. first thought of the nebula, the uh, nebular Laplace, nebula condensing? Yeah, the nebular hypothesis, right? So, um, so this was he was in the latter part of the 1700s and, and uh, um, came up with this idea of, of the solar nebula that that uh, basically contracted and and uh, separated off rings of gas, which then w turned into the planets. And uh, this theory is not really right in all of its details. We now understand that the solar system actually had a lot of solid junk in it before the planets formed. Um, but nevertheless, it, it does provide a good framework for understanding so stellar evolution. And also, this was the first one of the first theories of how the moon formed the the condensation. Right. The, let's see. Uh, you have that's right. Mar it's sister moon. Is it sister moon? Yeah. That's sister right. moon. The sister moon theory. Uh, now. Then we had the daughter moon theory. This was first popularized by the son of a very famous That's man. Right. Yes, again, one of the fun characters in my book, a guy named George Darwin, who was the son of Charles Darwin, the famous naturalist and author of The, of the Origin of Species. So George Darwin was a, a very well-known scientist in his own right, kind of forgotten today, but he actually... Uh, Pro proposed something that was called the fission theory for the moon, which was that the moon split off from Earth, a little bit like Anaxagoras's theory. But what George Darwin did was mathematically work out how this could have happened. And he spent years and years at this task uh, and never really completely, co never completed it entirely to his satisfaction. But nevertheless, for a long time, it was one of the strongest theories going for, for the moon's origin. Then along came the capture theory, and the, yeah. and the man to that you talk about, and I really like this character mm -hmm. to popularize this was Thomas Jefferson Jackson C. That's right. And for those of us in the Bay Area, uh, I don't know if we should be proud of him or, or feel a little bit embarrassed by him. A little bit of both, because he is the sort of rogue genius in my in my book. Um, he was uh, a. a you know, a brilliant guy, but he was also infuriating and um, and eventually kind of lost contact with the scientific community. But he was the first person to advocate what was called the capture theory of the moon, which says that the moon formed somewhere else in the solar system and was captured by Earth's gravity. Um, and there are, in fact, some moons in the solar system that are definitely captured. Um, Mars has two tiny moons, moons Phobos and Deimos, which are definitely captured asteroids. But the big question is, how do you capture something as big as our moon? And that's something that he wasn't really able to explain satisfactorily. And, and he didn't make a lot of friends in the scientific community. No, absolutely not. And this yeah. is one of the interesting examples of the politics of science. Could you talk about declaring your theory first in the newspapers? Well, oh, that was fascinating. Right. So, so as I said, um, 
C was really a jerk. He, I mean, he just he he thought he was the smartest guy in the world. He wanted everybody else to know it, and he was just forever getting into arguments with other scientists. And eventually, the you know his his peers could not stand to have him around, and um, and he kind of got in worse and worse positions. And finally, he was sort of exiled out to San Francisco to Mare Island, actually, where there was a an observatory that kept time for the West Coast which was actually a big deal back in those days. It wasn't so easy to synchronize all the clocks on the West Coast when you barely even have telegraphs and so forth. So it was, it was a good position, but, but certainly not something a research astronomer would aspire to. And so he could no longer get his p papers published in reputable publications. And so instead, he would go to, to the newspapers, the San Francisco newspapers, and say, you know, this wonderful world-famous scientist has come up with this wonderful new theory called the capture theory, and you've got to put it in your paper. And of course, you know, the editors did. And so that's how the capture theory was first published. Now, then we had, of course, the co-accretion theories, which are the sister moon. Right. And, and could you explain, tell us what has to be explained about the moon orbiting the Earth? Sure. Well, um, so what's interesting is that there are there are many different pieces of the puzzle for the origin of the moon. It's like a whodunit or a jigsaw puzzle. You've got all these pieces you've got to fit together. One of the pieces is that uh, the the moon is very large for for a satellite. It's the largest satellite relative to its planet in the solar system. Another piece that has to be explained is why does the Earth have a big iron core and the moon has almost no iron core? The moon is almost all rock, whereas Earth is like about a third iron and nickel. And so if, you're, if you believe the co-accretion theory, you have trouble explaining that because if the moon and Earth grew up out of the same material at about the same time, why did the Earth get all the iron and the moon didn't get any? Hard to explain. So lots of little clues like this went into it. And then Apollo, of course, the space, the missions to the moon provided a lot more clues. Well, but before we got the, the yeah. clues from Apollo, we had the 1960s politics of science. And there were a lot of really oh, yes. interesting characters mm -hmm. in there, too. Yep. Harold Urey, who, right. <laughs> managed yes. to, who managed to insult every geologist on the planet. That's true. He did, yes. <laughs> he, so Urey was this Nobel Prize chemist who... Uh, was really one of the driving forces behind the idea that that we should go to the moon. You know, the U.S. was casting around for how do we respond to Sputnik, and um, so it was Yuri who really told President um, President uh, Eisenhower first, and then also had the ear of Lyndon Johnson, who was vice president of you know uh, who was Kennedy's vice president. Um, so he was the one who really pushed for going to the moon as something that we could do and that would be an appropriate response, sort of politically and so forth. Um, but as I, as you mentioned, Yuri was a very strong, you know, somewhat egocentric person in his own right, and he didn't like the way that NASA was going in in its direction of preparing this moon mission. He thought there were far too many geologists running around, and wrote a, a letter to the. NASA administrators saying, saying everybody knows the geologists are the, the less bright sort of scientists, you know. And so he thought he ne we needed more, more people like him, of course. So. The, then we had uh, another interesting figure, Ralph Baldwin, a, an outsider scientist who, who managed to get some traction. Right. So that's a, that's a fun story, too. So there are not too many amateurs who get taken seriously in the world of science. And in a way, that's regrettable. But, um, 
but Baldwin was one of them. He's uh, he was a, a a businessman who who became wealthy uh, on his own accord, but also a very enthusiastic amateur astronomer. And he started studying the moon's craters and was really the first person to explain how these craters crows, craters arose out of out of meteorite impacts and the first person to reala realize that these were explosion craters. And and this was something that we couldn't have figured out until we saw her, the craters of, from Hiroshima, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. A, a, a funny sort of, I mean, sad but true the consequence of the nuclear era was that we had all these, um, actually these these uh, places where we did test bombs, you know, blew up in, in Nevada and so forth. And so, um, before the you know before the treaty was signed banning um, banning the uh, explosions nuclear explosions above ground, and so there are all these craters in Nevada that you can go and study, and these are formed by explosions that are similar to the size of the explosion made by a decent sized meteorite, and so you can study the form of these craters, and it's very similar to craters on the moon. And uh, a geologist named Gene Shoemaker actually was the person who really did this. And, and was saying this is really the convincing evidence that Baldwin is right, that when a meteorite hits, it explodes, and that's what gouges out these craters. Now, there were two kinds of theories, it, and it was uh, cold moon and a hot moon theory. Mm -hmm. and, right. and there were two proponents of this, uh, Mr. Urey. Mm -hmm. And another gentleman named Kuiper, is that? Yeah, and, Gerard and, Kuiper. Right. And he well, later had a very famous object named after him. The, the Kuiper Belt, right, <laughs> which uh, which we are in fact sending a uh, satellite to out to even as we speak. It was launched a year or two ago, and we'll get there in 2015. So, um, yeah, so the Kuiper Belt is where we think comets um, and long-term you know, long-term comets live, and um, so. Yeah, so Kuiper and, and Yuri had a very heated rivalry, and they were actually enemies. And uh, and but they served; they both advised NASA on the moon missions. And so there's a, a funny story about how there was one time this uh, this executive body meeting, and you had Yuri on one side of the table, you had Kuiper on the other, and they wouldn't talk with each other. And then you had Shoemaker in the middle, and but they and they would both talk with Shoemaker. And so you know he basically was ferrying the messages back and, and forth between them. What what did we went to the moon? We mm -hmm. brought back some rocks. Mm -hmm. What did they tell us? Well, as I said earlier, they provided a number of clues to this jigsaw puzzle. So probably the most important clue that we got from the moon missions was that the moon was covered by an ocean of magma early in its existence. Uh, so and this ocean was like 600 kilometers deep, very deep uh, ocean, much deeper than Earth's water oceans. And so that was one clue. And um, it, I could talk a little bit about how that came about. But um, second clue was the, uh, the complete dryness of the moon and the absence of anything with a low boiling point, such as water um, or uh, other, other elements called volatile elements. So this was another clue that, the, uh, that something happened to get rid of all these volatile elements very early in the moon's history. And the third clue was, was oxygen isotopes, the, the ratio of the two different forms of oxygen in the moon rocks, which turns out to be extremely similar to Earth rocks, and therefore suggests that the Earth and the moon arose in roughly the same part of the solar system. And there are various other clues that were also discovered. And so there are all these little bits and pieces which you know, had, to be fit, you know, had to fit together some way to, to form a theory. 
we have we have these clues, and we have another man who I find really interesting, Velikovsky. I, I have to make <laughs> you talk about yes. Velikovsky. Okay. <laughs> right. Okay. So uh, as um, as my book talks about the uh, the theory of the moon that has eventually won out um, is the giant impact theory, which says that Earth ran into another planet very early in the formation of the solar system, and this planet would have been roughly the size of Mars. And so this th theory is called the giant impact theory. It was proposed in 1974 by a guy named Bill Hartman, who is really the hero of my book. Now, I wrote a chapter or a, a piece of a chapter in my book about Velikovsky, who was this sort of um, cult scientific figure from the 1950s, who actually wrote a book uh, saying, suggesting that many of the miracles described in the Bible were actually real events that had astronomical causes. And so he advocated, he thought that Venus had sprung forth from the brow of Jupiter. In other words, the planet Venus had come out of the planet Jupiter, and he felt that it had passed very close to Earth and slowed the Earth's rotation down, which accounted for the, there is a famous scene in the Bible where the sun stops in the sky so that Israelites can, can win a battle and so forth. He felt this really happened because the Venus passed by the Earth and so forth. So, so this was widely ridiculed by scientists and, um, and partially with good reason, but partially also this re re reflects scientists' prejudices at the time that, you know, the cosmic encounters between planets were just inconceivable at the time. But now we realize that early in the solar system, and we're talking four and a half billion years ago, very, very long time ago, these things, things like planetary collisions collisions did actually happen and there was just a whole lot of debris and junk in the solar system at that time and things had to run into each other so there's nothing outre or bizarre about this idea that earth ran into another planet um, so but it's funny that they would never have taken this theory seriously if a guy named a guy like Velikovsky had said it and really Velikovsky's mistake I think scientific mistake is these events he's talking about could not have happened 5,000 years ago, but four and a half billion years ago, yes, they can. So tell us, how long did this, what you call the big splat, take? Well, um, not very long. So, I mean, the, this impact would have been, uh, you know, would have been a, a matter of hours. And it's just imagine, incredible to imagine something the size of Mars looming in your, in your sky and getting closer and closer. And then, of course, then it, of course, hits the Earth. It, it shears off about ha a hemisphere of Earth, splatter, you know, splattering stuff out into orbit. And then uh, very rapidly, actually, Earth resumes its spherical shape, but there's all this debris in orbit which formed a ring like the ring of Saturn. And, um, but it was not stable like Saturn's ring, and so it quickly conglomerated into the moon, perhaps in as little time as a year. And, and do we know where, the, where this asteroid hit? No, we don't, because as I said, the, the Earth was, was, you know, was liquefied by, by this impact. And so the force of gravity quickly rounded Earth back out again into a sphere, and so there's no crater, there's no sign of this impact anywhere. We've been speaking with Dana McKenzie. His new book is The Big Splat, or How the Moon Came to Be. Thank you for joining me, Dana. Well, thank you very much.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thank you.